Well, good morning, church. Uh, If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. And I know what's on everybody's mind this morning. Is it Melchizedek, Melchizedek, or do we go Hebrew, Melchizedek? I know that's on your mind this morning. Uh, I'll just switch it up, so we'll see. It might be Melchizedek, Melchizedek, it might be... All right, Hebrews chapter 7, you know what the topic is, Melchizedek. Before we get into Hebrews chapter 7, though, uh, I just want to say at the beginning of the new year, it's a good time, as Aaron uh, noted, to reevaluate our priorities and look at goals. It's a time where I often look at what are the, the goals that I feel the Lord has given me over this year. And, uh, you know, it's a good time also to let you know that there are great resources that Mary Lynn keeps stocked downstairs in the bookstore. So if one of your goals for 2023 is to read more, there are some fabulous resources down there. I just want to note just a couple that have been really significant for me. Uh, just really quick before we dive into the text, a couple practical books and a couple uh, devotional books. The first one, if, if you struggle just to, to, to get stuff done sometimes, this is a great short book uh, titled Do More Better by Tim Challies, uh, pastor, web designer. He uh, just, just really helps lays out some practical advice on how to, how to, to be productive with our time. If you're in a, in a season of life where you need to make a decision, and maybe you're graduating this coming spring, and maybe you graduated last spring and you're in the middle of a decision, this, this short book here by Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something, is a great way of walking through how to make a decision that honors the Lord. So those are two practical suggestions. Uh, I'll also send out an email too. So this is, I'm going to just go really fast through this and then I'll, I'll send more details. But some devotional suggestions uh, that I also want to make at the beginning of the year. Uh, this one here, I, I affectionately call this the scratch and sniff version of Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which is a 1,200-page book. But this Christian beliefs, 20, 20 basic Christian beliefs, is a great start in just growing our understanding of what Christianity teaches. It is a very brief overview, but it, it spurs a lot of conversation. If evangelism is something that you're desiring to grow in this year, uh, another great book resource that's available down there is uh, a resource by Nine Marks that's called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. It really brings it in to becoming part of our lives and sharing our faith. And finally, one of my favorite discipleship books is a book by David Platt called Follow Me. If you've read David Platt's book, Radical, this one to me is along the same lines, but a little bit more developed. It will challenge you uh, to, to follow in the footsteps of Christ. So again, I'll send out a, an, an email this week with those book recommendations, but I wanted to not, uh, I, I went back and forth of whether I'd take time to do this this morning, but I felt it's good. It's good for us to, to know uh, what's available to us and to continue growing. So if that's on your 2023 list to do, uh, open up some books. Um, there's some recommendations to start with. All right. Hopefully you are in Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, I'm not yet, so. Melchizedek. Again, yes, eight times in the book of Hebrews we see Melchizedek referenced, five of which are referenced in chapter 7, where we'll be today. 
We saw brief snippets in chapter 5, chapter uh, 6, and now in 7, the author really digs into Melchizedek. So we're going to read the first uh, few verses, 1 through 24, um, in a minute. But uh, the author of Hebrews, he continues to develop. We need to understand that he's developing an argument uh, from the beginning of this letter all the way to the end of this letter. He has a purpose in his writing. And we take chunks each week and we're making our way progressively through this letter. But we need to understand there's a bigger argument that is happening here with the, the, the writer of Hebrews. And that is that the superior, superiority of Jesus over and above the pillars of Judaism, it gives hope to believers. It is something that we hold on to knowing that Jesus is better. But it is also a stumbling block for unbelievers, particularly for the Jews. And so the author of Hebrews really presses into some of these tenets of the Jewish faith to show how Jesus is better. And so sometimes we kind of scratch our heads because we're not necessarily under a sacrificial system like the, the uh, read original audience of this book or go to temple and see the priests. And we just, these things are foreign to us in our context, but the message is consistent throughout all generations. This book has led people to Christ, to, to love and see Jesus more clearly, love him more deeply throughout generations. It's a beautiful and wonderful book. And so the author of, of the book of Hebrews, we come to chapter 7, and we see that he, he narrows down on the priesthood of Jesus and showing that the priesthood of Jesus is far superior to the priesthood of Aaron or the Levitical priesthood established under the law of Moses, the Mosaic Covenant. The priesthood of Jesus is superior because it predates Israel's priesthood, as does his kingship. The overall argument of Hebrews is that Christians can hold fast through every trial because Christ is superior. Two weeks ago, Pastor Mike preached on the central point of this argument, namely that because Jesus is better, and we saw this at the end of chapter 6, he says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The central truth that I pray we walk away with today is the understanding that Christians have this sure and steadfast anchor. We have hope in any circumstance because Jesus is a true and better high priest, the guarantor of a new and better covenant. So we will read through the first 10 verses, and, uh, and I'll circle back and make some comments. So this is Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. 
Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And these descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment, a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Uh, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so in these first 10 verses of chapter 7, uh, we see very little about Melchizedek. Uh, one one uh, theologian said in, in, in answering or addressing the question, who is Melchizedek? He says, Melchizedek is a mysterious biblical personality whose name means king of righteousness. The historical record about this priest king is found in the final verses of Genesis 14. That is the historical record we see the, the author of Hebrews references it. Mike has referenced it in previous sermons as well. Uh, Genesis 14, uh, beginning in verses 18, we see Melchizedek pop up in Psalm 110, what we read as our call to worship this morning. And then here in Hebrews, he is a very obscure biblical character. And the obscurity surrounding Melchizedek has led some into major confusion about him. Uh, there's historical evidence of a heretical sect refuted by the early church fathers who viewed Melchizedek as a heavenly power greater than Christ, and that Christ was made in his image, in Melchizedek's image. A lot of confusion surrounding him. Uh, this group of, of people looked to Melchizedek for salvation, and they taught others to make offerings in his name in order to be saved. Other church misconceptions and heresies about this character, Melchizedek, uh, taught, taught that he was the Holy Spirit. Others still taught that he was Jesus before the incarnation. So what we can see by a brief look into church history is that there was a lot of confusion surrounding who exactly is this Melchizedek. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 7 this morning, it is important for us to focus on the points that the author makes within the context of the greater argument. Namely, that the author wants us to know that Jesus is the true and better high priest of a new and better covenant. This is the context in which he brings up Melchizedek. It's not to give us a history lesson on who he actually is because no one really knows who he is, where he came from. They don't even know who his dad is or when he was born or when he died. We just don't know. And so the point is not to get stuck on what Scripture does not give us, but to focus on what Scripture does give us. And so that's a principle applicable in more cases than just here with Melchizedek, but uh, we're going to, to look at that this, this morning. So in these first 10 verses, we see a few things that the author of Hebrews really wants us to know about this biblical character. One, his name is significant. Not only does he give us his name, he also gives us the meaning of his name. That Melchizedek means king 
of righteousness. It's not significant who his daddy is. It's not significant when he was born, where he was born, or where he died, or where his tombstone is. That's not, not significant. He doesn't, that, it doesn't matter to the author of Hebrews. His name is significant. His interaction with Abraham is significant. He wants us to recognize that, that there was a significant interaction, though brief, a significant interaction with Abraham. This is a point that's going to support his argument of showing how Jesus is better than the line of priests that came through the people, the descendants of Abraham, namely the people of Israel. So his interaction with Abraham is, is significant. Uh, the fact that he was a priest and a king is significant. In fact, only two in all of Scripture are noted as a priest and a king. Melchizedek and Jesus. Nobody else. And his kingdom is significant. It says that he is the king of Salem, as in Jerusalem. Like, he was the king of the early founding of Jerusalem. Jerusalem in Hebrew is a compound word, meaning foundation of peace. Salem produced, uh, preceded Jerusalem as the center of worship. And, and what the author of Hebrews wants us to see is that as this city was the early foundings of what became the center of Hebrew worship, Jerusalem, where the temple is, just as uh, Melchizedek was the king of this early city, Salem, and that pr it preceded Jerusalem, so too the priestly line of Melchizedek precedes the Levitical priestly line of Israel. Again, the context of this for us is like, okay, well, how, do, how is that important? For the original audience, that was incredibly significant because they looked to the priestly line of Israel to be their mediator between them and God. A point that the author of Hebrews wants to, wants to make very clear is insufficient. Insufficient mediation through the line of Levi, the line of Aaron. But we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. So commentator Dan Brockway said this about, uh, in his article titled Melchizedek, says this, and he, he, he says that Psalm 10, which, which is quoted multiple times in the book of Hebrew, uh, Psalm 10 declared that God was going to do something new by bringing into history a priest king like Melchizedek. His priesthood would last forever. He would be appointed directly by God. And so we have this historical event brief in Genesis chapter 14. And then we have this, this end time type song that was sung by the people of Israel in Psalm 110 that, that looked to a day when God would establish a king priest like the king priest that nobody really knows much about but blessed Abraham back in Genesis 14. And it was going to be not just a temporary kingdom, it would be an eternal kingdom, one that had no end. And he would be not just a priest or a king, he would be a king priest. These are significant points. As with the Old Testament prophets declaring a new covenant... The author of Hebrews declares God has established a new eternal priest king foreshadowed by Melchizedek who is superior to all other kings and priests of Israel. 
He alone is worthy of worship. As the Levitical priests give, gave honor, giving of their tithes, as we read, to Melchizedek through their representative, Abraham, so a greater honor is owed to Jesus. And again, we need to keep in mind the central argument of the book of Hebrews, that Christians, we have this sure and steady anchor, hope in every circumstance. Why? Because Jesus is a true and better high priest, far greater than the law, than the patriarchs, than the covenants. Jesus is the guarantor of a new and better covenant. Having established significance in God working outside of Israel to bless Israel, who in turn is to be a blessing to all people groups, part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, right, was that God would use Abraham's descendants to be a blessing, not just to his people, but to all people. And so as these Hebrew readers are reading through this letter, they're in mind thinking, well, God's promise to Abraham, to our ancestor, was that through Abraham would be a blessing to all people. And the author of Hebrews says, wait a minute, like God did something outside of Israel to bless Israel through Melchizedek when he blessed Abraham. And like that same line, God is doing something here in Christ that is far superior to everything that you know. It is greater. It is better. And his point in chapter 7 is that Jesus is the true and better high priest. So we come to verse 11 after establishing the points that, that he wants his readers to know about Melchizedek. He says, now, now here's the point. Listen to me. This is why I bring up this guy who nobody really knows much about him other than his slight interaction with Abraham and this prophecy that some, someone was going to come along his lines and be a greater priest, high priest, who would have a kingdom that would never end. And so he says, now, in verse 11, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priest, the priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a chance in the, uh, sorry, when, when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to, belong to another tribe, for which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that, with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Verse 15, this becomes more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 18, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who has said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever 
Let's pause there for a moment. The author of Hebrews is getting to the main point of his argument. Why he brings up Melchizedek is to show that Jesus is the true and better high priest. And so he brings up this hypothetical. If it were possible to be righteous under the law of Moses with the Levitical priests, why would Psalm 110 be written declaring that a greater priest king would come not from under the law of Moses, but from outside of the law of Moses? And his point being is that this former way, the law, the old covenant, it had its purpose. As theologian Michael Kruger writes, the law was simply provisional, pointing forward to to the one who would ultimately achieve redemption for us, Jesus Christ. The law of Moses was not intended to make an unrighteous people righteous, though they tried. Right? The Old Testament is, is filled with stories right, of the best of us. Right? Solomon, why is all of his splendor given in, in so much detail? Because it's shown that the, the, the most resourced of us, guess what? He could not keep the law. David, I mean, he takes on this, however tall he was, Goliath. And the Hebrew word that Goliath was covered with scales and the Hebrew readers are thinking, is this fulfilling Genesis chapter 3 where the son of the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, the man who's covered in scales, and he throws a rock and hits him in his head and crushes his head? People are thinking, this is the king that we've been waiting for. And guess what? David, the bravest, couldn't keep the law. He failed. He himself needed atonement for his own sin. Again and again, we read stories and accounts in the Old Testament of the best and the brightest and the bravest failing to keep the law. Eight times Israel goes through this cycle of rebelling against God, being conquered by another nation, repenting and calling out and crying out, Lord, save us, we've made a mess of everything. God redeeming them and bringing them back into covenant fellowship with him just for them to repeat the cycle. Eight times through the Old Testament we see this happen. Why? Because we can't fulfill the law. Because the law was not intended to bring us salvation. It was intended to expose our need for someone greater. This is the argument of the the author of Hebrews. The greater has come. The greater is here. It is in the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The law of Moses, it wasn't intended to make an unrighteous people righteous. Rather, it revealed that attaining true righteousness is impossible through human effort. Divine intervention is needed. And this is exactly his point when we come to verse 22. Verse 22, the writer of Hebrews says this. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, he's writing to people who lived by covenants. Not just one, but many covenants, agreements that God had made with them as a people. And Hebrews is saying, listen, all of those covenants, they all prepared us for this moment. 
when a new and better covenant by a new and better high priest, a true and better high priest would come. Whereas the law condemned, Jesus, verse 25 says, is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Furthermore, the law intrinsically communicates its temporary state. If you study the, 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 uh, the traditions that they did annually, perpetually, they did this as a people group. Uh, the, the Levitical priesthood standing before the people, it, it communicates its temporariness. The man responsible to mediate on, beh- on behalf of the people, the high priest, was continually needing to be replaced. Why? Because he was also a sinner subject to death. They kept dying. The high priest would die and a new one would need to be installed. The same thing with the sacrifices. But you might say, well, Jesus died. I mean, he's the the true and better high priest, but he died. But Jesus also made it very clear. No one took his life. He did not die because he was subject to death as a result of sin. But he laid down his life Willingly, John chapter 10, Jesus is having this interesting conversation and teaching with people and making some religious people very upset in this chapter. And in this chapter, verses 17 and 18, he says this. He says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. No one has said this before. That's why as you read through the New Testament accounts, people are like, man, I've never heard teaching like this. He speaks with authority. Yeah, because everybody else, they died and stayed dead. And then a new priest had to be installed. But Jesus is saying things like, listen, death has no hold on me. And Hebrews is saying, remember this because Jesus is the true and better priest. He makes a new and better covenant, a new and better way of salvation. They're the only way of salvation. Additionally, when we look at the sacrificial system, it was repetitive. It repeated itself, indicating that it was insufficient to fully atone for sin because you had to keep doing it an argument that we'll see come up later in, in, in the, the writing of Hebrews, uh, specifically chapters 9 and chapters 10, where the author of Hebrews will say, Jesus' sacrifice, one and done. That's all that needed to be done. You don't need to do it again and again and again and again like the old system. And see, it was ingrained to show that this system was temporary. It was insufficient. It was preparing the people for something greater. I think that's the point of why the author of Hebrews brings up Melchizedek. It says, before these systems were even involved, God was giving us hints that he was going to do a greater work. Then the covenants and the regulations and the stipulations that, that Israel was given. In fact, we'll read in a couple weeks in chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, that the author of Hebrews calls these systems, the priestly line, 
the sacrifice. He calls them copies of the heavenly things. Continually referring to them as temporary installments of a greater permanent work that God would do through Jesus. Jesus, the perfect high priest, the only one perfect in righteousness. Again, Michael Kruger will state it this way. He says, quote, Jesus is the eternal high priest. He is able to provide that eternal security which we need. And he quotes verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Believers, we have a sure and steadfast anchor. We have hope in every circumstance. No matter how dire or depressing or challenging or hurting or successful and exciting, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, our only hope is Christ. Friend, you may be here today. You may be in a similar situation and not even recognize it. We are so prone to look to our own actions and behavior to merit us favor. Similar to the Israelites, we are in a system that our behavior merits reward. But inwardly, if we are relying on our good behavior, on our good works, for favor with God, we are in the same camp as Israel looking to insufficient means for salvation. Our good works will never be good enough. Our behavior will never be perfectly aligned to God's righteousness. Therefore, we find ourselves in great need. We can fall into the trap of comparing ourselves with others. Many do. Within the church, many do. Well, I know I sin, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Or I'm not as bad as I could be. Friends, this is a trap. It is a trap to lead our affections and our attention away from Jesus and glorify ourselves. And it's a lie. The tragic news, if you are looking to your behavior or your righteousness for merit, to merit favor for you, the tragic news is that this logic, this way of thinking is flawed. It is looking to a system which cannot save. Hebrews chapter 7 reveals to us that there is no salvation apart from Christ. No one can save themselves through human effort. But the good news is this. There is one who never bowed under the mastery of slavery, the mastery and slavery of sin. He chose to make a way of salvation not through the law, though Jesus perfectly and righteously obeyed it on our behalf. But he chose to make a way of salvation by grace through faith in him. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he writes to the church, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel boldly declares sinners are made righteous by grace through faith in the one true king priest, Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 10 tells us that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, then we too will be saved. Like the author of Hebrews, Paul in Romans is encouraging us to find our anchor and our hope in one source, Christ alone. Christ alone. Christ alone. Maybe you're here today and you have put away works of self-righteousness. You see them as they truly are. You do not look to your efforts, be it works, be it amount of knowledge, whatever it be. You do not look to your works, but you do look to Christ for salvation. Then what is a right response for those of us who look to Christ as we read chapter seven? Well, I think we see that in the final verses. As the author of Hebrews, as he is comparing these two systems, the system of Israel through the high priest and the new covenant through the high king priest, Jesus. And he comes to the conclusion at the end of, of this chapter that our right response when we see these two things rightly is to worship and adore Christ. He says, beginning verse 26, for it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for, the sins, uh, for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, the old system, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, who has been made perfect forever. His way of salvation is the way of righteousness. Every other way is insufficient. His kingdom is eternal. His salvation is permanent. His priesthood is everlasting. His name alone is worthy of glory, honor, and praise. Amen? Amen. Well, may you and I cling to the sure and steady anchor, finding hope in every circumstance because Jesus is a true and better high priest, the guarantor of a new and better covenant. Let's pray. God, this morning, we come before you. We see beautiful work of salvation that you have, have done in Christ. We see a glimpse of the old system, the old covenants that were set in place to prepare the way for the work that you would do in Christ, through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us in this new year to see you more clearly, 
more accurately. I pray, Jesus, that you would help us grow in our affections for you, Jesus. Yes, God, help us to grow in our understanding and our knowledge of you as well and our knowledge of your word, but God, help us to grow in our affections for you. That we would not just know information about you, but we would desire to know you. To see you at work in our lives, in the church, in the world around us. God, I pray that you would help us to look to you in all things. Not to our own works or our own knowledge, our own resources, but God, help us to look to you. Help us to trust in you, not just when life is challenging, but that we would look to you for all things and in all things. And God, if there is anyone here today who has not place their trust and faith in you, Lord, I pray that they would see you as you truly are. That Jesus, you are the true and better way of salvation. And that life and salvation and redemption is only found in and through you, Jesus. God, I pray that as we continue through our study in Hebrews, that you would continue to, to draw our affections and our attention to you. That our response as we open your word would be that of worship, adoration, and awe of who you are and the glorious things you have done. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.